Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. And today we're going to be talking to Lisa Ray from Restorative Justice International. I first became aware of Restorative Justice back in 2011, and over the years we've talked to Judge Gottlieb from Fresno County in California, where they have a youth offender program. I've also spoken with a mother whose daughter was raped and killed in Texas, and she ended up reconciling with the offenders. Lisa Ray has spoken at a number of our events in the past and will again in October on progressive prosecution issues. She has an interesting background that includes time as a legislative analyst. She's a restorative justice expert and lecturer with over 20 years experience at the state, national, and international levels with special expertise working with crime victims. Lisa, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, David. It's great to be here. Great. So can you uh, kind of explain what restorative justice is and why it applies to a variety of areas of the criminal justice system? Yes. Well, thank you again for having me on the podcast. It's an honor. And um, yeah, we um, first of all, Restorative Justice International has been around since 2008. You can find us online, restorativejusticeinternational.com. And yeah, I get that question all the time. You can imagine, what is it? What's restorative justice? And I always say it's a set of principles. Restorative justice isn't a program. Sometimes people think it is, but it's a set of principles that applies to our criminal justice system. And what it, what it um, says is, in essence, it, it states that crime is not a crime against the state, but crime is a crime against a victim, a real human being. And therefore, we need to respond to crime and violence in, in a way that, that understands that. And so it, what restorative justice does is it applies um, the principles to our broken system to ch- really change laws and change the way we respond to crime. I see. Um, so uh, it was really interesting. I was reading uh, in the paper locally there was a, um, a murder that took place and the woman ended up pleading out. And the way they do a lot of sentencing is once uh, somebody's going to be sentenced, they allow the victims to give an impact statement. And I was really struck by the anger uh, that some of the uh, family members expressed in the wake of the sentence and, of course, this horrific murder. Um, And was thinking, wow, this is a moment maybe where restorative justice might be able to help the victims better cope uh, with their loss. Um, did you have any thoughts on how that could happen? Yes, and I know you sent me um, the article um, in the Davis Enterprise about that case. And yeah, you know, um, the, the work that I've done with crime victims um, in California and nationally and, and globally, what, what we've learned is that crime victims often feel left out of the system. And so when they feel left out of the system, they're, they're not empowered and they're angry when their needs are not addressed. And that's in you know, our, our traditional criminal justice system. It, that's really what it does. It leaves victims out. Now, some people would say, well, that doesn't seem correct. 
we see that they often get what they want. Well, do they? Um, so, you know, restorative justice says in essence that, well, their needs aren't being met. So in that case, um, uh, it's good that the victim was able to read a victim impact statement. That's very important to crime victims actually to be able to get up in court and read that statement. But what's missing is that where is the offender accountability? So that's something that we stress at RJI is that offenders need to be held accountable to whom? To their victims. Now, how does that happen? In a court case, it doesn't happen. Um, rarely is there um, connection, direct connection between the victim and the offender. Now, maybe the offender might say something in court um, in some way that shows his or her remorse, but that's often not the case, and actually that's not the best place for that to happen. But so victims are angry because they cannot get um, answers to their questions that often only the offender has, or, or usually only the offender has. So in that case, we'd say um, it, it would be uh, more important for that victim to have some direct contact with the offender if the offender um, felt remorse, showed remorse, and accepted responsibility. So I would think, you know, some of my listeners may be wondering, you know, isn't that the job of punishment uh, to hold the offender accountable? I mean, she's going to spend 13 years in prison. Isn't that enough? It, it, isn't it enough if, um, to be punished? Correct. In, in, in essence? Well, actually, what we found with the crime victims and victims of violent crime that we work with, which is largely the population, um, they want to see accountability. And so what, they, what we've learned from the work we've done with crime victims is that often uh, a heavy um, sentence, prison sentence, is not enough. And we find that to be true because um, around the nation and globally, crime victims are asking for restorative justice. And why is that? It's because the traditional criminal justice system does not meet their needs. And so they, as they learn that there are other victims of violent crime that have participated in restorative justice processes, that is, that would be victim offender uh, mediation, victim offender reconciliation, um, those types of programs, that there is healing that comes to them um, when they are able to be in contact with the offender. Now, that's not always what a crime victim um, seeks, but at the same time, they, uh, crime victims around the world are, are listening and watching when they hear that others have chosen restorative justice for themselves. And so there's more healing in their lives when they, um, they are able to see remorse in the offender and also when um, he or she is able to take responsibility directly for their crimes. And so punishment, punishment actually becomes almost secondary to them. Now, this is true even with cases of somebody who's received a death sentence, which would be surprising to some of your listeners, perhaps. But we work with uh, victims who, um, who have suffered from extreme violence, and many of them are opposed to the death penalty. And uh, there's a group that we work with called Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing. And, there's, and that group is filled with victims of violent crime who oppose the death penalty and support restorative justice. So one of the things I was going to ask you, I mentioned restorative justice on my news site. I often get people pushing back saying, well, this is really just a soft on crime thing. But that's really not what it is. And in fact, it doesn't necessarily even change the punishment for the offender, correct? 
Well, that's true. That's true. And um, on our website, I encourage your listeners to watch a short video that we have in the front. It's a real short introduction to RJI. But, you know, I always laugh when I hear people say, oh, this is soft on crime stuff. This is, you know, meeting with a fender and, you know, keep talking about healing and so forth. You know, the victims of violent crime we work with, they say the toughest thing that an offender will ever do is meet me, meet me directly and face me. Because offenders, you know, they can do time um, if they get a long sentence and at some point get paroled. They, uh, I work with the offenders. In, in my past, I actually worked with offenders in California through a group called Justice Fellowship. And I found that that they often did not think of their victims when they were in prison. And why is that? Because we don't lead them to that place. And so victims say, no, the toughest thing they'll ever do is face me directly and take responsibility for their actions. But you're correct in that um, if restorative justice is used, um, it often does not affect the sentencing. But, you know, around the world, actually, what, what we're doing in the restorative justice movement, which is what it is, is we're really changing the way we respond to crime. And so that means the application of restorative justice is applied throughout the system. And it's, um, it, it can be applied very early in the system uh, before someone is sentenced, or it can uh, be applied during uh, an offender's sentence or even afterwards. And all of this, by the way, is, is driven, we believe, and th the best way is to be driven by the crime victim. And we call it victims-driven restorative justice. And it's very interesting because what you're really doing is you're humanizing both sides of the equation. So for the offender, all of a sudden the victim is not just an abstract person, but an actual person that they have to interact with and, and be held accountable by. And by the same token... Um, the the offender becomes a person too. They're not just this faceless monster uh, in the person's dreams. Uh, they realize that they're a, they're a living human being that may have made mistakes. They may have been addicted to something. Uh, they they may have done something horrible. Um, but all of a sudden, instead of being this faceless, nameless person, um, they take on real human qualities uh, for the That's person. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right, David. Absolutely. In fact, I encourage people to listen to the podcast we have on our website. We interview a lot of victims and some ex-offenders about their experiences with restorative justice. Restorative justice. But your your comment about humanizing both the victim and the offender is exactly right on because um, there's a fear um, in the life of both the victim and the offender about the other. And um, and the restorative justice really does humanize uh, both. And that's very important. And, you know, I learned so much from crime victims and offenders, ex-offenders, but crime victims in particular about what they want and, it, and um, how, how they profit from participating in restorative justice is really varies greatly. Um, many victims, after they participate in restorative justice, they actually care about what happens to the offender. That is, they want to see that the, the offender, if he or she is released from prison, they want that offender not to um, commit a, a violent act, any kind of criminal act again. They want to see that person no longer addicted, if they were, um, no longer participate in any kind of 
um, criminal activity, but they want to see them get on their feet again and rejoin society. Now, that people don't realize that about restorative justice. The victim says, yeah, we want them reintegrated, and they want, we want them never to commit the act again. But, they'll, you know, often after there's a restorative justice um, conference or dialogue, um, both parties agree to some kind of an agreement about um, the actions that the offender can take. And it, like one, in one case, Cheryl Ward Kaiser, she's a, a victim and a survivor of a violent crime in California in Salinas. And she's one of the first people I ever met in this movement in the 1990s. And she, her, her husband was killed. Um, it was a home invasion, a burglary, and her daughter was raped in front of her. And it was an unbelievably grievous, violent act. And she wanted restorative justice once she heard what it was. And she met with, there were like five offenders in her case. And the last time I talked to her, I think she met with four of them. Um, but she was an early supporter of restorative justice when it really wasn't used that much in the early 90s. And, and she wanted each offender to take responsibility directly. She wanted them to meet with her. And she also wanted them to remember her husband every year. And that was something that she asked them to do and to be in contact with her. And she wanted that with, with most of the offenders um, in terms of just being in, in letter contact for a period of time. But it really varies in terms of what victims want and what's meaningful to them. One of the big problems in the criminal justice system is that you end up sending these people away, sometimes for a long time, but most of them are going to get out at some point, and most of them end up uh, reoffending um, because they they don't have the skills, they haven't really acknowledged uh, the harm that they've done, and so as I understand it, restorative justice is a way to actually reduce uh, what's called recidivism. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know. Um, RJI is a big supporter of evidence-based research. Um, we work with research groups around the world that do this kind of research. And, you know, hand-in-hand, hand, good legislation, good lawmaking has to go hand-in-hand hand with good evidence. And there's evidence there that restorative justice works. It drives down recidivism rates. And more than anything else, actually, that we've ever seen and other, my other colleagues around the country and, and globally, and, you know, that's key. I mean, when lawmakers look at, at whether restorative justice should be um, implemented, whether they should um, support legislation or, or uh, write legislation to expand it, we always point them to the research and say, you, you need to look around the country, see where it's already happening, which is in many places around the United States and outside the country, and see that it, it drives down crime rates. And not only that, another important thing, as we've been saying, is that Victims are more satisfied with restorative justice than the traditional criminal justice system. Those, so those are two key factors, and then offenders are changed. Another key factor. So, of course, you need to support it. So it's really interesting. One of our big focuses in criminal justice reform has been investigating and looking into wrongful convictions. And I was reading this book, um, and it uh, introduced the idea of restorative justice for wrongful convictions, and I had really never thought about it. But if you think about this, um, so so one of the books that I read 
the guy um, was wrongly convicted of raping this woman when she was a college student. He goes away for a period of time. I think it was over a decade. Uh, wasn't as long as some of the wrongful conviction cases, but it was a long time, and it it definitely took a huge chunk of his life at that point um, spent in prison. And uh, you know, eventually DNA uh, exonerates him, uh, and he gets released. At some point, this woman uh, is feeling more and more guilty about what she had done. And it was interesting because often the the police officers involved in the investigations become defensive after uh, these things. And they deny that there's a wrongful conviction. But this officer was actually a little different, and he felt badly too and, and was wondering what went wrong. And so one day she uh, she basically came to him and said that she wanted to meet with uh, the offender and and they went through this kind of long process and over time they became close friends they began working together to prevent other wrongful convictions and it became this way for both of them to overcome the experience from her perspective she was traumatically raped and and uh, the uh, she had thought that the right person was put away and it was based on her identification, and the two guys had looked very similar, and she ended up getting it wrong, and, and she had a, a profound amount of guilt over that. And for him, of course, there's anger uh, at uh, being locked up for uh, a crime that he didn't do. Um, so I was wondering, um, and I, I know you've done some work in wrongful convictions as well, and I uh, was hoping you could share some of your experiences. Yes, yes. Well, you and I care deeply about this. I think that's how we really uh, met in Davis there. Um, yes, there's a huge connection between wrongful convictions and restorative justice. And I need to, to mention the work of Jeffrey Deskovic and the Des uh, Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. And I know you're going to have him there in October. And he is a close uh, colleague of RJI's. And I actually met him um, last year, uh, he's in New York, and he was wrongfully convicted and spent um, some, I believe, 16 years in prison. Uh, Maybe longer than that. It might have been 20. Yeah, I think um, it was 17. He, yeah. Well, he was, uh, he was convicted of rape and murder when he was 16 years old, and he was innocent. And I, I remember finding his story online and contacting him, and he was very active on social media. Um, but we ended up working together on legislation that he um, was spearheading in New York, um, which created a prosecutorial um, conduct commission um, to really examine uh, wrongful convictions in New York and uh, to do something about it. How do you stop this? And he, you know, his case is just an incredibly um, amazing story. The fact that it happened and they got out and how many more are there? And, you know, just to quote um, some stats, and this is from the National Registry of Exonerations. So since 1989, there have been some 2,238 exonerations, and 35 of them came from DNA alone. And so to, to make the connection, though, uh, I was interviewed by a reporter in New York who was covering that story about the, the legislation that, by the way, was signed by um, Governor Cuomo. And um, she interviewed me, and she said, I don't get the connection between what you do and what Jeffrey Deskovic does. And I said, oh, it's really clear. 
you know, if you get the wrong person in prison, you just created another victim. And then, as you described in the case you were talking about, the crime victim has no justice either. So there's not the wrong person's in prison. So where's the real perpetrator? So now we've created two victims. Unbelievable injustice. And so, um, you know, and, and restorative justice would, in a system based on restorative justice, that would not occur because restorative justice needs to apply to any injustice in the criminal justice system. Why? Because it's about systemic reform of the criminal justice system. And so um, not only um, should restorative justice principles apply to these types of injustices, but um, for those who've been wrongfully convicted, RJI strongly supports restitution, that they are fully paid restitution um, in any state where this occurred. Now, one of the first um, exonerees that I met was in the state of Oklahoma. His name was Greg Wilhoit. And Greg was um, doing time on death row in Oklahoma for killing his wife. Now, they convicted him on teeth marks, teeth marks on his, supposedly on his wife. It was totally flawed. He was an innocent man, and he finally got out, but his life was destroyed. I ended up meeting him and becoming close to him and his, his family, and he since died. He actually died in Sacramento in California, and um, he never received a penny from the state of Oklahoma. Well, that's just not fair. That's not right. It's not just. And restorative justice then, as applied, would say you pay that person. You pay that person restitution, and the system needs to be held accountable, including any prosecutor that was involved, you know, any um, any um, law enforcement that was involved, any witnesses. And that's, I think, what we're about today. And I know that's something that you care deeply about. Yeah, and you know, there there are just a lot of applications for restorative justice. And I guess that's one of the points I want to get across in this uh, podcast uh, for for people, because I think, I think there's a very limited view about what restorative justice can do. Um, so yeah. I was hoping you could talk a little bit uh, about uh, mass incarceration and how restorative justice can apply there as well. Well, yes, it's, it's very interesting because um, I've been involved in this work for 25 years, 25 years, and I've, you know, done it California, nationally, and internationally. And, you know, right now, as we know, as a nation, we're looking at mass incarceration. Finally, we're saying we're locking up too many people. Well, we've known that for a long time. You know, in California, uh, a progressive state, we've been doing it. It's gotten a little bit better. Um, but at the same time, that's our quick response to crime is we lock everybody up. You know, we're going to lock them up for anything, nonviolent offense or violent offense. And so when we look at this problem across the country, especially in election year, and candidates and even the sitting president are talking about prison reform, criminal justice reform. Now, we need a new vision to replace one that does not work, our criminal justice system now, which is broken. And so, you know, when we talk about mass incarceration, that's a good thing because we're identifying that we're locking up too many people. We can't afford it. It doesn't work. They come out no better than when they came in. And victims aren't satisfied. So so I argue that, well, we need a vision for what it should be. And that's where restorative justice comes in. Because restorative justice can be applied, as I said earlier, at any point in the system. 
I mean, the key is that um, nonviolent offenders can do their, in essence, time in other ways other than being sent to state prison or even to jail. And that's where restorative justice comes in, in that how do you apply it then? Can you, um, how can you bring the crime victim in so that they can be restored on some level as much as possible? And then how can you hold that offender accountable? And you can do it through various ways. Um, there are various programs that are available um, that can allow uh, offenders to be diverted away from prison. Um, and But you have to have those programs in, in communities in our states, and those programs need, be, need to be funded. So in the 1990s, when I was lobbying on restorative justice, and I had worked in the California legislature, by the way, before that, um, there was a there was a lot of programming in California throughout our state state of California, and uh, but those those organizations have to be funded. They need to lawmakers need to know they exist, and then they they need to be given even more um, opportunity to work with offenders and victims. So we got a chance a few weeks ago to actually cover a live press conference, which. Uh, talked about restorative justice. It involved a state senator in California, Glazer, um, who is pushing a groundbreaking restorative justice program that will be created as part of the California state budget. And it gives victims a chance to heal by engaging with the perpetrators of their crime. And so I'll read a quote from Senator Glazer. Restorative justice has shown in limited circumstances to hold promise as a way to reduce crime and give victims greater satisfaction than the traditional criminal justice system. This program will allow for an expanded test of the concept, a rigorous review of the results. If it works as we expect, the program could be expanded statewide and would reduce prison costs while improving the lives for offenders and the broader community. Uh, so do you know much about this program and what it would entail? Yeah, I actually was, before we got on the podcast, I was looking at um, the text of the bill. And, you know, I think it's a good start. It's good that, that Senator Glazer and others um, have uh, decided to carry this legislation. Um, I would just say, though, that... Um, uh, having a pilot program, a three-county pilot program, is actually a little backwards. I mean, we're way beyond having pilot programs. Um, you know, when I wrote legislation in California, pilot programs mean usually mean you're not certain about the outcome. Well, there's evidence that the evidence-based research shows it works, and it, it's working nationally and internationally. So starting with a pilot program in California at this hour is a little bit tentative. Um, it's good that it's being done, but um, you know, victims are way beyond that. And you can look at various counties in California where it's already being done, and Oakland, and Fresno, and Monterey County, and San Diego. So if it's going on already, why are you stepping out <laughs> and doing a pilot program? So I just say, you know, I think they could be a little bit more robust. Um, it's always important, though, to get the funding, and so any monies that come from the state to support restorative justice programming is important. But we need greater vision. Um, you know, there's states around the country that are more advanced in restorative justice in California. One of them is Colorado. Um, Colorado's uh, governor 
and uh, uh, a um, legislator named Pete Lee, strongly in support of restorative justice. Um, they, they've done very robust work with juveniles, juvenile offenders, and using restorative justice. But they've also gone out there and supported restorative justice with um, in cases of adults. And and you know the 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 text that you just read. Uh, what I didn't like is saying that it needs to be limited. Um, you know, the only limit that should be placed on restorative justice is what crime victims say. Victims of violent crime support restorative justice. They want it used in their cases. And it, it's not actually that the research doesn't show that it works really well with nonviolent cases. It's actually lesser, has a lesser effect in nonviolent cases where it's most effective is in cases of violent crime. So that's actually kind of contrary to the text you just read by um, Senator Glazier in SB 678. Yeah, I think in fairness, one of the things that I learned when we had the restorative justice uh, program, I think it was back in 2013, one of our annual fundraisers, and we had Judge Gottlieb from Fresno. And it was amazing to me, you know, just how much further Fresno had gone than Yolo County, where I live. And so, you know, I think what happens is that there are places that have gone very far in terms of creating these programs and places that just haven't done anything, they don't understand it, it's new to them. And so what what we're kind of seeing with this pilot program through the state is kind of the first go round of the state of California trying to take on this issue and trying to catch up to where the rest of the country is. And so from your perspective, you know, this is like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, from their <laughs> perspective, this is a bold new start and they got to make sure that they cover their tails so that they, they don't get too far in front of their constituents on this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think now's the time for boldness. And, you know, you have a governor that, to me, has taken a lot of steps already in, in terms of looking at um, our broken justice system, including supporting um, ending the death penalty. Um, but, uh, you know, California, uh, I think at this hour, what's needed really is statewide legislation. Um, not pilot programs. I mean, I would support it. RGI would support this legislation if we were asked to, um, and we'd testify on it. But um, I just think it needs to go much further. And, and now's the time for that. Um, like I said, the, the governor would support restorative justice. Um, I don't know if he's been approached on it, but I, I think it's just really something that reflects his positions. And it, and it actually reflected the way Jerry Brown um uh, governed as governor, and um, you know, but we need we need lawmakers who support the vision of restorative justice and know what it means, um, and that includes um, uh, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. Um, you know, she was Attorney General in California, and when I was in California lobbying on restorative justice, I had another organization called the Justice and Reconciliation Project (JRP), and we contacted her as Attorney General. And we asked her to support restorative justice and, and meet with us or somebody in her staff. And I remember we got no, no reply. Um, so I don't know. I mean, whoever's talking about um, criminal justice reform has to see the big vision of restorative justice. They're not acting in a, in a vacuum. 
they need to look around the country, not just around the state, the state they're in, but around the country and outside the country. And let me give you a couple examples of internationally where it's really, really um, advanced. And, and I'll just mention, there's so many, but I'll mention three countries. Uh, one is Ireland, and two is New Zealand, and the third is the UK. Now, just from those countries, there is so much going on. If our, if our listeners Google those countries and put in restorative justice, they'll find a ton of information. Well, they can find it on our website as well under news and our podcast. Um, but uh, for example, in the UK, they have, they have a system inside their government that automatically is using restorative justice. They, they assume it should be available to crime victims. They offer it to crime victims. Now, they don't always, they have some problems over the last X number of years making sure that the monies come down to the communities where it can happen, you know, where it takes place. And, and I mean, they're, um, but they're doing something that's uh, very systemic and they are changing the way they respond to crime. Their law enforcement officers are working on the ground to promote restorative justice and offer it to crime victims. In fact, one of, this is another another uh, sidebar comment, but one of our positions at, at RJI is that we support a victim's right to restorative justice. Now, when you look at it that way, if it's a right, statutory right, then what would that mean? Well, that means that it has to be made available very early in the system. As soon as they become a victim, it should be made available to them. And who would do that? The district attorney, or the attorney general. And so looking at it from that perspective, then that's when state governments have to be there to say, well, we got to make sure those programs are available wherever in, in our state, in the counties, on the state level, and we might need to make sure the funding's there. And so, you know, looking at it from what, how I'm describing it, then I look at a three-county pilot and I go, oh, well, that's, no, <laughs> that's not so great, right? And so, you know, partly we have to educate lawmakers to say, okay, just we want you to look around and see more than you see today so that you're not operating, like I said, in a vacuum. What do you see as the biggest barrier to kind of expanding uh, what we do in the criminal justice system with regard to restorative justice? What, what do I see as the biggest barrier? Correct. Um, you know, I just look at it since I come from a political background and worked in the legislature and have run for office myself and have lobbied, I'd say the biggest barrier is a view that still holds that tough on crime works. That's the barrier. And so if the public thinks that tough on crime programs or responses to crime works, then that drives how we respond legislatively. And that gets in the way of lawmakers being bold and courageous. And, you know, they don't really even need to be courageous. They, now we, we know that restorative justice works and they need to get on the program. They need to understand what it is and understand how it can be implemented widely. So, you know, that's to me, I mean, I, looking at this work over so many years, all these you know, 20 years, that's what I concluded. I concluded that in California when I lobbied there that that got in the way because there's a fear in, in lawmakers that they're going to be doing something that the public doesn't support. But actually what we're seeing is that in the, um, in the media and social media and media, 
Um, crime victims are speaking out. You see it every day. And that's something we really uh, do a, a lot of work to promote crime victims who support restorative justice and tell their stories. Because that, that should tell lawmakers, okay, this is what they want. This is something I can support. Um, this will drive down crime rates. This will change offenders. And as you said, when they come back into communities, we want to make sure they're different than when they went in. And restorative justice ha makes that happen. And then crime victims are satisfied. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I'm starting to see in the criminal justice system is a recognition that the old ways didn't work. They didn't work for the offenders and they didn't work for the victims. And people yes. that thought that they were being friendly to victims by throwing the book at offenders were quite mistaken. That uh, a lot of victims don't want that anyway. Um, That's right. It always surprises me the number of crime victims that say, no, I, I don't want the death penalty, even even in the case of murder of the loved ones. Now, there, there are obviously some that do, and they want more and more severe penalties, but more and more we're seeing a push away from that and toward uh, a reform system, and it seems like a lot of people have this conception that uh, restorative justice is really uh, a, a narrow program. I see it as a very broad program that you can put into a whole variety of different locations, some of which we didn't even talk about today. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But you're totally right. That's totally right. I I mean, it's a new vision, and and crime victims increasingly are supporting uh, restorative justice because one thing that we didn't say and I didn't stress, it's about offender accountability. And, uh, and that's what they want. You know, do they want longer, um, prison sentences? No, they want accountability. What does that look like? Well, ask the crime victim. And once they, once they participate in a restorative justice process, then they say, Oh, this is what I really wanted. This is what really satisfies me. And you're right that the crime victims, they're not all on the same page, but we interview a lot of them on our, on our podcast, and there's a lot of variety there. And, you'll, you know, people should listen to those podcasts and learn. But, yeah, it is, it's the new way forward. So if people want to get more information about your organization or about restorative justice, where would you recommend they go? Yeah, they go to restorativejusticeinternational.com. And, you know, they can join us as an affiliate. They can contribute. They can contribute to our podcast. And we're really active on social media at LinkedIn. We have 6,000 members, and we have affiliates around the world and around the country. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on our show. Well, thank you, David, for having me. It's great, and it's great to be the first one. <laughs> yes, great. Well, th thanks a lot. We've had uh, Lisa come out to Davis a number of times for our programs, and she'll be coming out uh, this October 26th. And one of the uh, guests that she mentioned was uh, Jeffrey Duskovic, and he'll be one of uh, our speakers as well. Uh, so, so thanks, uh, Lisa. Looking forward to seeing you in a few months. Thank you. Thanks. This has been David Greenwald. This is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. If you want more information about our work in the courtrooms, you can go to vanguardcourtwatch.com or specifically in San Francisco, sfcourtwatch.org. 
We publish on a regular basis, and we send interns into the courtrooms in order to monitor what's going on, and we uncover quite a bit in the way of injustice that way. Thanks, and we will be back in a few weeks for the next episode.